This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the rest of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app, new and improved Times Radio app, no less, so you can listen to us if you're out and about. Just a reminder that at the end of this week, we are opening the doors to the Museum of Political Fiascos, all prompted by Danny Finkelstein earlier in the week. He suggested that Liz Truss's lecture should go in a museum. So we open the doors to the Museum of Political Fiascos. If you've got a suggestion for what should be in it, is it a lectern? Is it a bacon sandwich? Is it John Major's soapbox? You can email me, matt at times.radio, matt at times.radio, and you can join the team of curators. That'll be on the podcast tomorrow. Right, coming up today, it's the monthly Times Radio focus group. A panel of undecided voters deliver their verdict on Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak and sweary Gillian Keegan. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, let's take a wade through the news with today's columnist panel. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Hello, Manveen Rana. Hello. And to Matthew Bell. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, good to have you both here. Now, uh, Rishi Sunak is off on his travels. I assume he's not going by helicopter. I think it, I'm not sure it would get him all the way to uh, to India. But he's off to the G20 summit in India uh, later today. Amrit Dillon's a reporter for the Times, based in India, uh, and I asked her to just sum up for us the uh, the state of relations between the UK and India. Well, as of now, I'd say the relations are pretty good. I mean, the FTA, of course, is taking a long time, but that was natural because there's so many complex, contentious issues. But as far as that can tell, relations are good. There are no friction points. Uh, Moti has described India's relationship with uh, the UK as a living bridge between the two countries. And on uh, Britain's side, I mean, for Mr. Sunak, India is very important because of its uh, population, which has overtaken China's. India's is the fifth largest economy, which offers a huge market for British goods. And India is a useful counterweight to China. Now, internationally, human rights organizations have over the years wrapped the Indian government on the knuckles for uh, alleged human rights violations, for suppression of certain freedoms, and for the treatment of the country's minorities. But uh, the difference is that no Western leader, including Mr. Sunak, has um, thought it fit to uh, reprimand Mr. Modi on these matters. So I don't see any major friction points, except, of course, the issues in the trade talks, which need to be ironed out. 
So, Matt Reedy, Matthew, I wanted to sort of talk about sort of Britain's place in the world. It seems like there's obviously lots going on domestically, but the two two big things, I suppose, happening this week, um, Manveen. Britain rejoining the Horizon Science Programme, cooperating with the EU, having mm. left it so stroppily uh, after voting for Brexit. And then uh, Rishi Sunak going to India to this, to this summit, this G20 summit, and sort of try to find his Britain's and his place in the world. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I don't think this is a, a new thing. If you remember, Theresa May, one of her first visits was to India, and it was just after Brexit. And I think she sort of thought this would be an easy trade deal to be able to say, "Here's global Britain. We're back on the scene. Where, uh, you know, leaving Europe hasn't affected us at all. Here we are, sort of sharing the biggest trade relationships with the big, sort of rising emerging economies." Um, and it didn't work. You know, she turned up and I remember speaking to sort of some of the people who went with her who sort of said, you know, I think they sort of had a slightly colonial, old fashioned view of India where it was like, well, we have these very old links. And when we get there, they'll all welcome us in. And actually, they sort of said, well, why would we need a trade deal with you? And I think it was probably sort of a moment for the government to sort of realise that in the new world, uh, you know, what do we actually have to offer? Um, and, you know, this trade deal ever since then has been on hold. And it's mainly because we, we haven't been able to agree on whether we should allow more Indian students in and more working visas for um, for Indian citizens to come over and, and work in, in Britain. I think we'll probably have to en end up giving way on that. Um, but, you know, that's a discussion that we've never really sort of had, you know, politicians never have with the public, you know, given that so much of the Brexit vote was against more people being able to come to Britain to work. Um, you know, I don't know how well that's going to go down. But we're sort of in a position where if we want these trade deals, we're, you know, we're now, we have a very weakened hand. And, you know, India is part of the BRICS, these great rising economies who who are sort of creating their own um world order really you know i think that the, the only thing that really unites them so this is a group that started off because they were the big rising economies many of them have floundered you know if you look at south africa which is one of them they're in the economic doldrums but they had this big meeting a couple of weeks ago in south africa and they're now extending the group and the only thing that really unites them this is you know it's a group that includes saudi arabia and iran who are sworn enemies india and china to be honest are still on a war footing in many places the only thing that unites them is the desire to show the West that the world has changed and they're now far more powerful yeah. than they were in the past. And I think that, you know, for, for governments in the West is a real alarm bell. We should we should be taking note and working out um, how we can have trade relations and how we don't end up alienating the rest of the world. And, you know, whether there is a way of, for example, having relations with, with in, in India and, and, you know, therefore... Um, getting away with, uh, you know, had slight difficulties with China. You know, it's just working out your new alliances, and I don't think we're forward-looking enough to be doing that right now. Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of this visit is going to come down to Sunak's personal relations with India, and I'm not sure that that's really a sustainable way for a government to to go forward. It's it depends on him being number ten. It's interesting that, and actually, um, Matthew, this morning the the High Commissioner for India, who's based in the UK. Uh, Sri Vikram uh, Doriswamy was on Times Radio and talking about this, you know, they want to get a free trade deal because there's a lot of businesses which invest, British businesses which invest in India and, and vice versa, but actually was quite adamant that they, they, they weren't looking for visas. They weren't looking for higher numbers of people to migrate to Britain from India. What they wanted was to make it easier for people to move between those to uh between the two countries inter intercompany transfers was the big the big thing and actually i suppose that's like proper grown up nuanced political discussion uh as part of a trade agreement rather than uh the sort of the the slightly 
uh, more simplistic view of people coming to Britain equals bad. Well, exactly. And I, I, I have to say, I do feel a little bit sorry for Rishi Sunak because it seems this trade deal has been going on for nearly two years. Um, uh, I think this is the 13th or 12th round of talks they've had. And this sticking point does seem to be the issue of visas, which is the great irony, of course, which is if we can get this uh, trade deal through, then th th this will really make the Brexit project take off finally, because it's going to be a very valuable arrangement. However, the sticking point is the free movement of people, which is the one thing you can't tell Brexit supporters you're giving. So uh, he, he's really got to try and make it work. Um, I don't know if he will, though. Um, uh, you know, he's uh, there, there are 20 countries, more than 20 countries present. And my interpretation of these events is it's everyone's going in there trying to get their own agenda dealt with. And in, in the case of Modi, you know, he's positioning himself now as a global statesman and using the G20 very much as an opportunity to set out his stall uh, as India rightly so, as you know, one of the, the largest economies in the world. Is he going to have time to listen to Mino Rishi Sunak coming up to him? Uh, I don't think so. Um, but I, I, th I think they're meeting again in the autumn to, to thrash it out. But it would be fantastic, as you say, if, if Rishi could uh, be open to a more nuanced type of agreement, whereby there could be a bit of flexibility in the movement. But, you know, he's got to come back to the House of Parliament and to the far right of the Conservative Party and say, look, I've got the trade deal over the line, but it does mean a bit of nuance. And uh, I don't think nuance goes down very well with the far right of the Conservative Party. Yeah, and actually, it was an interesting um, question as well around whether or not uh, Rishi Sunak's Indian heritage, obviously his, his father-in-law is the billionaire Indian businessman as well, whether or mm. not that will, you know, that, you know, politics ultimately is about people. Uh, and get, that might get him an in and actually a, is a basis for, for starting some of those talks in a slightly more, I don't know, cooperative collegiate way rather than the, the, the standoffs that we've, we've maybe seen in the past. Well, we'll see, we'll see how he gets on as he heads to the G20. We'll also uh, keep, across, uh, keep across that. Let's come from the G20 in India. Let's come straight back to uh, the South Cambridgeshire District Council. Uh, it has been pioneering, giving staff a four-day working week. So, you know, like the bin men, if they could collect all the bins in four days. So, same number of bins being collected by the same number of people. You do it in four days and you get a three-day weekend. But the government doesn't like the idea. Uh, and it's written to, again to tell them to stop it. Here is uh, Rishi Sunat talking about it in the comments. Public servants should rightly focus on delivering for the public and taxpayers. And it is disappointing to hear from my honourable friend that his local Liberal Democrat council is not doing this. Reducing, as I heard, staff contact hours and costing residents more. I urge the council to reconsider their decision because his residents and constituents in South Cambridgeshire District Council clearly deserve better. Clearly deserve better. But this is employees getting 100% of their workload done in 80% of the time for 100% of the pay. It's a Lib Dem run council, so that may well be uh, be playing into it. Uh, the local government's minister, Lee Rowley, has written to them again yesterday, uh, telling the council to stop it. Uh, Matthew, what do you think about this? Because it can cut both ways. On the one hand, uh, you know, if it gets the work done and you can retain staff, then that must be good. But on the other hand, if they can get all of their work done in 80% of the time. Maybe they weren't doing enough work in the first place. Well, there's a word for this, and it's called efficiency. They're just getting the job done in less time. And, and that's all uh, people want to do. Uh, that's what you're asking of your employees, is to, to be as efficient as possible. So I'm all for the four-day week. Um, you know, Alain de Botton wrote a very good book about this, analysing how people work. And he saw that these uh, companies in the city that expect their employees to come in very early and stay all night work till late doing these big deals, their efficiency actually went down over time because it, you can't be expected to work 20 hours a day. 
And so if the, the council in South Cambridgeshire is managing to find a way of cramming all their work into four days, then they will benefit long term from having a three day weekend. Um, you know, the, the five two ratio of the working week is, uh, is I think, needs to be changed actually um, for more people because there's so much personal life admin you need to get done. You know, you, you end up doing at your desk at work. So your efficiency when you're at work goes down if you're having to turn up nine to five Monday to Friday. Whereas if, you, if you're given a day off to go and you know, do your Christmas shopping or whatever it is. I think actually the the rewards are for the employers. Um, what do you think, uh, Manveen? Because some employers might think, particularly the private sector, might think, well, if you can get the work done, you can pay for four days' work. Well, I I don't know. Like Matthew, I am a fan of the idea of a four day working week. Places where they've made it work. I mean, there are lots of studies into this that sort of say, as Matthew said, you know, it leads to greater efficiencies. It makes people more productive when they are at work. Um, you know, they're less tired, they're much more committed. The places where it has worked across the continent, you know, places like Belgium and, and Portugal, I think, they've had a model which they sort of call the 180-100 model, which means that you're you're being paid 100% of what you were paid before. You're still being paid exactly the same wages. You're spending 80% of your time that you were spending before working, but you're still 100% in terms of productivity too. So the, the the deal should be you still get paid what you were before, but you sh- you've got to show that you're being just as productive. What I can't figure out with this with this council, because you know, in many ways, I think this is probably the future and, and well done them for recognising that and moving towards it. But there seem to be lots of problems. They, their productivity definitely seems to have fallen. They're not answering calls efficiently. I couldn't understand what's happening with the bin men. The bin men are going down to four days, but you'd sort of think, well, don't they just rework the rotor a bit to make sure bins are still being collected every week? It feels like maybe they're just doing it wrong. I think for a four-day week can be hugely successful. Maybe they just haven't figured out how to how to make it work. You know, just rotoring people on different shifts, or or making sure that the round, you know, the the bin collection round is sort of divided up into a four-day system instead. I just feel like that these are surmountable problems. I suppose the thing I can't is, understand why they're not working. I can understand the bin. Because there are, you know, you you have a number of bins that need to be collected, and you can tell at the end of the four days whether or not they've all been collected. Have you done a hundred percent of the bins yeah. in eighty percent of the days? If you are a, I don't know, planning officer who's got to just work through a never-ending supply of planning applications, or mm. someone working on policy, or something, yeah. something with a less definable thing, how can you? know that someone's doing 100% of the work and 80% of the time. Well, well, those are the people that will actually suffer if they end up working a four-day week because you end up doing your, your, you know, you're allegedly you're off on a Friday, but you end up having to do more work to catch up by the Monday. I mean, I remember I had this, I had a three-day week job on a magazine, which sounded like the dream job, but actually you end up working on the other days because everyone else is in five days a week, so they're still emailing on a Monday and a Friday. Uh, and so it's those jobs where there's a never-ending amount of work that uh, it doesn't work. You've got to have uh, fixed times and you go in, you do as much as you can, you get out again. Same with a GP. You know, if he's got 200 telephone calls waiting, he can't be expected to sit there and work through them all. He's got to leave and go home at some point. So as you say, I think it only works if there's a finite amount of work that you've got to get done in the time. Yeah. Well, or, so- or that you, sort of, you change the system. So you invest a bit, you employ more people um, and you just, you know, you give, you rotor them on particular days so that somebody is always covering the work. But Every single yeah, yeah, person yeah. within that is working four days, which shouldn't mm. be, you know, shouldn't be impossible. And actually, I mean, but the other thing is the, the the if retention is part of the issue, if the idea of a three day weekend means you get better people and they don't keep leaving, because the the, mm. the 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 lost opportunity cost of spending time recruiting 
advertising, interviewing, onboarding, that terrible phrase and all that, um, that has a cost as well, which is obviously, it often isn't taken into account when you're looking at, you know, retention and recruitment. So, uh, moving on from the uh, four-day week uh, to uh, the state of the jobs market generally, Britain... Are Brits work shy? Britain is one of the least work-orientated countries in the world, with less than one in four people think their career should come first in life. That's according to a new international study. Uh, they spoke to uh, people about work in 24 countries, found people in the UK were the least likely to say that work was important. 73% said that work was an important part of their life, compared to 96% in Italy and 94% in France. Uh, which flies in the face of the idea that we're the hard-working ones and it's all those work-shy Europeans. Well, uh, let's speak to Anne-Elizabeth uh, Moutet, who is a French journalist and a columnist at The Telegraph. Who joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, are we wrong to think the Brits are the hard-working ones and uh, the French are the lazy work-shy ones? I, well, you are probably wrong to think that the French are work shy because what we do is we, we, we make space for things in our lives like, you know, lunches and not, you know, it's even forbidden by law, by health and safety to have lunch at your desk in France because of hygiene reasons, for instance. So we try and make space. But once you get at working, you know, after the strikes and everything else <laughs> and the long weekends, um, we are actually among the most productive workers in the world, more productive than American workers, for instance, and I think more productive than German workers. So, but, you know, it's, a, it's, it's more concentrated, but they, they take it seriously. In, in terms of a poll, uh, my feeling when I was sort of reading the long piece about it is that there are different um, views of this. Um, because when you ask a, a British person, is your work the most important thing in your life? It's not a very British thing to be earnest. So they will say, oh, no, there are plenty of interesting <laughs> things. Whereas the French and the Germans are going to demonstrate how serious they are about these things and how important their job is. Uh, but my experience is also that the British, uh, uh, the, the British like their bosses better than the French do. I mean, the French hate their bosses. Uh, they caricature them at every instance. Um, the, the relationship within any kind of hierarchical outfit in France, whether it is uh, uh, the civil service or a private company, is the boss's king. Uh, under the boss, you've got three guys who are desperately vying for the boss's job, and all the rest are peons. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm almost not making this up. It, and it's, it's very different in terms of atmosphere. Um, uh, I, I asked this with some trepidation, Manveen, but do you hate your boss? <laughs> I, used to, I, used to have a, I used to have a boss I hated. Oh, I don't know. I, I like mm. my bosses now, but they're English. What about you, Manveen? Don't don't ask me on radio. <laughs> no, no, I I don't thankfully. Um, but I, I you know I I think I think you're onto something. I think the British are much less likely to admit to putting work first because we just wouldn't, even if that's what we did. Um, so I, I imagine a survey like this might suffer in terms of that. Although, like the survey has been going on for forty years, and it does show a steady decline, which I think is really interesting. Uh, I, I, I have to say, I was shocked when I saw it because I thought, who are these people? Everyone I know seems to work incredibly hard. Um, but I actually made it thinking, Matthew, this, is, this wasn't a bad thing. The idea that maybe no, we're great. getting our priorities right was probably quite good. 
Well, absolutely. And I, th I think it's to do with there's been a shift in recent years where we're being told to live our best lives. And, uh, you know, clearly that doesn't involve work as much anymore. Uh, so maybe it's, you know, there's a, a new generation of people who are valuing other things such as family, home time, other things other than work. And I have to say, I was very surprised by the story because it's not at all how I perceive all these countries to be. Yeah. But but if it's true, uh, it's, it's really, really fascinating that there is a kind of shift. Um, and maybe people are wanting to do jobs that they find more fulfilling and more interesting. So but but the idea that job doesn't, your work doesn't come first, I find that very, very surprising. Uh, and I, yeah. I wonder if it is generational, because, you know, it seems to be that millennials and then general, generation Z, Gen Z, as we're supposed to call them, um, they they seem to value work even less than generations before. And I wonder if it's if you've grown up with your parents working very hard and not being able to put family first, maybe you sort of reprioritize and, and decide that that's what you're going to focus on instead. So I, I just thought it was really fascinating, real, real sort of social change. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is really interesting. I just want to pick Jay, um, uh, Matthew up on using the phrase living your best life. That was dangerously close. <laughs> <laughs> dangerously close to sort of live, laugh, love, the sort of thing that's get you banned from coming back. But we'll let you off. Uh, Anne-Elizabeth uh, would say thanks very much for joining us this morning. Actually, before, um, before I let you go, Matthew and Manveen, we are opening the doors to the Museum of Political fiascos tomorrow. Yeah, we've been scouring the globe for the treasures that can go in the museum. We've got, I think, Liz Truss's lecture, the Edstone, uh, David Cameron's pasty. Uh, Matthew, what would you put at the Museum of Political Fiascos? Well, I hope it's going to be interactive because there's got to be a big transport section with Nicholas Soames's quad bike and Andrew Mitchell's bicycle and maybe Boris Johnson's JCB digger. Plow, you know, you can get into it and plough through the EU red tape and maybe get on the zip wire, hop onto the double-decker bus. All you know, I think it's got to be transport focused. I think we might even have a transport room. Uh, what yeah, about you, Mamby? There'd have to be some cardboard boxes painted as buses in there as well. Um, I mean, I, I think the Edstone is a really good one, but you mentioned Ed, the Edstone and pasties, and I, I sort of think actually anything food-related to do with the Miliband, so there'd have to be a bacon sandwich and a banana, things that kill political careers. Matthew Bell and Manveen Rana, then. Of course, you can listen to Manveen every day on the Stories of Our Times podcast, one story told in depth wherever you get your podcast from. All right, up next is the Times Radio Focus Group. 
Absolutely. So uh, we work with an independent market research agency to find people according to a particular specification. And the people we were looking for this month were, were a mix of Labour and Conservative voters in 2019 who are now undecided how they would vote. And they were from three key constituencies pivotal to the next election, Finchley and Golders Green, Wakefield and Hastings and Rye. Uh, and the big caveat that we always make, uh, I'm sure people could repeat it verbatim now, Matt, uh, is, that, uh, is, is that it's different from a poll in that we're not sitting here and saying this is what swing voters across the country definitively think. It's only eight people or so, Polls are of 2,000 people. They're much more likely to be nationally representative. Focus groups are there to dig a bit deeper to find out what might be informing those polls, which, of course, currently show Labour significantly ahead of the Conservatives. And it's a reminder that then when, you know, although they said they were undecided, when you sort of pressed them on it, some clearly come down one side or the other. And it's a reminder that therefore somebody might tell a pollster I'll probably vote Labour at the next election. Underneath that, they might have doubts or concerns or... Um, you know, getting a sense of are they enthusiastically doing that or otherwise is important. Uh, before we even got going, James, uh, we've had a message from someone, another focus group of people who can't make their minds up, not the sort of thing we should be taking any notice of. Can we f have a focus group of people who can make decisions about what they think? Um, so just to, just address that point. Why, why are we going for undecideds and not people who are definitely going to vote Conservative or Labour? Well, the first thing is, is that that's a big chunk of the electorate. Um, people are not following the ins and outs of politics all the time. A lot of them even admitted on our focus group that they weren't very informed at all. And actually, they wait until the election day itself to, or the election campaign itself to think about it. Second thing is, is that in the dynamics of a specific election, the don't knows are really, really important. Um, about one fifth of people who voted conservative in 2019 now say they don't know how they would vote. And that is going to be a really important swing group. Of course, the direct switches, those who say Conservative in 2019 and now Labour, matter too. And in our last focus group, we spoke to them. Um, but this don't know group is actually larger. So absolutely pivotal which way they fall cover general election. Fine. That is all the background. Let's get on with it then. Uh, <laughs> um, and we should start with the big sort of political story of the week. Uh, the question of concrete, uh, this rack aerated concrete, uh, which has meant that uh, some buildings are at risk of collapse. More than 40 schools across England couldn't start as normal this week after finding rack concrete. Others uh, are still waiting to be checked. Same is happening in Wales and Scotland too. Um, but specifically on, on the question of, it's essentially around the schools because that was the, the sort of the big story a couple of days when we, when we did this. Uh, James, you asked them uh, whether they held the government responsible. I don't think at all. I think he has nothing actually to do with it. Not all. It weren't relevant to the decision at the time to put it in. Um, I, th I think it, it was used in the 1950s as well. So I think it goes back quite a, a way. Children's education is being affected and lives are potentially at risk right now. And Rishi Sunak does have to take some blame because a problem was presented to him and he chose to ignore it. James, what a corrective to the media and, dare I say, Twitter discourse about this story. Yeah, look, uh, it really hinged on how clued up people were about the story. Um, those who had heard about Rishi Sunak's previous decision as a Chancellor, like that lady you heard at the end there, did blame Rishi Sunak. But again, it is that corrective. People are not following in the detail that perhaps 
the press and uh, you know a lot of the uh, the, the sort of tw- Twitter commentary I have been over the last few days. And most people have seen this story. They've got a sense that it was around for a long time beforehand. And although they're very frustrated about it and they want it fixed ASAP and they're worried about it, they're not necessarily blaming the Conservative yeah. government and Rishi Sunak. It's really interesting, though, that people are, are able to sort of separate those things out. And maybe, I mean, this was, what, Tuesday night? Maybe you know, that, that shows a challenge for Labour in terms of trying to pin it on uh, the Conservatives. We should talk about Education Secretary Gillian Keegan in particular. And uh, some of them had heard about her in a sweary outburst where she was caught on camera saying she'd done an effing good job while others had sat on their asses. It, big question this. Did they mind having a cabinet minister who swore? I'm not that interested about a person swearing. Increasingly, I'm finding swearing coming into everyday parlance. And for me, it's not acceptable. And I'm very disappointed that a member of the government has sworn in public. We shouldn't really expect... Um, politicians to swear i actually don't agree i find they are still human and sometimes politicians just seem like robots i think there's worse things to worry about than if she said ass or whatever she said i agree james slight generational split in this i think you know the the slightly older lady there was said she didn't want swearing creeping into everything uh, but really, really interesting, which is what's so great about the folks, really, really interesting bit of analysis that we complain all the time about politicians being like robots. And then they show that they are, in fact, human. And when they're frustrated, they might swear, actually thinking they're not on camera anymore. And then we go, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. It turns out she's a human being. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I don't think Gillian Keegan's going to get a load of uh, uh, bonus from that because they voters do want authenticity, but they also want competence. And clearly, I don't think you know, people's views on the government's competence on this issue are particularly are particularly good. But it does speak to that. I thought what was really interesting about it is that they hadn't actually, from the clip, picked up on what a lot of people have commented on, the gratitude point, the sneering, you know, are, are they sneering at us? Are they, you know, asking more of the voters than they deserve? It was the swearing that dominated. And it is just, again, that example that people are getting this information from the smallest snippets. And for most people, they didn't see a, you know, whole portrait and uh, insight into a cabinet minister. They saw swearing and that's how they responded to it. Uh, Well, let's uh, on that question then of this sort of gratitude. Why am I not being thanked for doing a good job? Uh, This is this is what the focus group had to say about that question. Uh, Does anybody ever say, well done? You've done a good job. My regional manager don't come to me and go, you've done exactly what you're supposed to do at work today. But they'll come to me like, look, this is an issue, we need to talk about it, and get flagged up. They get paid a salary, that's their gratitude, right? As a society, we don't catch people doing things right. We catch people doing things wrong. Really, I mean, again, really smart analysis, James. Yeah, yeah. And this is when we prompted for that gratitude question and... uh, yeah, I love that regional manager point. It's basically, basically spot on. I think. I think we probably would all agree with that in in life. It might be it might be unfair, but everybody everybody faces that problem. Yeah, you don't go just get a pat on the head uh, for just doing your job, unless you're getting a knighthood for being an actor. In which case, that's completely fine. Uh, but let's move on and look at the broader political picture now. And you asked the focus group how they thought generally the government was doing. Abysmal. I'm a conservative voter, and I really am ashamed of what they've been doing. I'm a Conservative voter, but I I would say they're struggling. I feel like anything they'll do will be wrong. 
the leader of of the country is a finance man and he's managed to mess all the finances up. The expression I would use is out of touch. Rishi Sunak. I used to think that he was the man for the job, but now I think that he is so out of touch, he just has no idea what's going on. I mean, James, this is bad, isn't it? A Conservative voter saying they were shamed by what they've been doing. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there were some really, some really brutal, brutal quotes in there. There's this sense from voters um, that, and it's grown over the last few months, that the government comes up with a solution to something, it doesn't quite work. They go out for something else, it doesn't quite work again. We heard Keir Starmer yesterday at PMQs refer to them as the cowboys. You know, the cowboys are in charge. You know, they're just, you know, rubbishy sort of solutions that don't quite work. And I expect Labour may well have picked that up from the focus group because people are describing the government in those terms. They have these solutions. They don't quite work. They try another and it's still a shambles. And that's certainly cutting through to people in a way that perhaps it wasn't about six months or so ago. Um, and then uh, you asked them, and this is, always, this is always a sort of dabbing exercise, actually, for all party leaders. Uh, never mind the government in general. Can they sum up Rishi Sunak in one word? Overrated. Business-led. Incompetent. Out of touch. Billionaire just kind of sums it all up. Disappointment. Hopeless. And on and on it went, James. They talked about being... Uh, uh, having a silver spoon in his mouth about being rich and out of touch. Um, and that just seems to have been, you know, he's been Prime Minister for almost a year now, and that seems to have crystallised in people's minds. Brutal, brutal. And I think it's worth saying even more brutal than when we did the Labour switches group. Um, certainly, I think, the worst we've we've heard in these focus groups uh, so far. Uh, one of the most interesting ones uh, was a, a lady who voted Conservative in 2019, uh, as with others in the group, now undecided. Um, and she said, uh, Rishi Sunak, is, is, he's, he's very capitalist. He only thinks about the economy. Now, this same lady was not sort of, you know, uh, chomping at the bit for uh, for socialism, but she was using that word capitalist to mean he's only interested in the money. Um, he's this sort of billionaire. And some people, one person even compared him to Boris Johnson. They said Boris Johnson is the puppet Whereas Rishi Sunak is more smart. He knows what he's doing. The problem for Rishi Sunak is, is that some of these voters think he's channeling that intelligence and channeling that focus to enrich himself rather than uh, people uh, more broadly. And when voters make that assumption about someone's background, that becomes really difficult for a politician to turn around, however unfair it might be. And you asked them uh, exactly how they thought he came across when he appeared on TV. He's so short. He's a weasel. Mm. Not saying I'm Brad Pitt, but, you know, he's he's this small, like, little... He's just like a weasel. Like, he's not... I don't know how we can be expected to be taken serious. He comes across very smooth. Yeah, I would think he's slick. You'd want him to work for you. I'd say polished. He comes across as disingenuous. It's not as much what he says, it's his body language and his facial expressions. Blimey, O'Reilly. Then you asked them, <laughs> we'll come to the weasel in a minute, uh, but just to sort of lump all this in, uh, you asked them to give the government a grade from A to F. D, they've abandoned the young people and people in need. F, because there's too many problems. C, just enough to get by. E, um, not enough attention to the National Health Service and Education. E. F, 
Uh, I don't think they follow through on any of their promises. E, that they've got too many things that they need to start. D, F, C, E, E, F. This is getting worse, James, week to week. Yeah, look, this is not a, a government surging towards re-election, is it? I, I think on the, if this doesn't change, this is, I, this is also not a government that's even remotely competitive uh, come, come an election. Uh, very, uh, very sort of negative. And the interesting thing is on that question of how Rishi Sunak comes across, we've asked that a few times over the last few months. And uh, actually, even when uh, sort of um, media commentariat were saying, oh, perhaps Rishi Sunak's a bit wooden, perhaps Rishi Sunak's a bit patronising, Actually, voters, if you remember, were always sort of saying, oh, he's quite strong, he's quite, you know, he's quite professional, he comes across as quite intelligent. That also was different in this focus group. Let's see whether it's a pattern, um, but people becoming a lot more negative. And, I mean, you heard it there, as that man, you know, very modestly said, he's no, he himself is no Brad Pitt, but he thought that <laughs> Richie Sunak uh, came across as a weasel. And when voters are using terms like that, uh, it's uh, it, it's not, not great news, is it, Matt? If there's one glimmer of good hope, though, uh, a glimmer of hope for Rishi Sunak, it was when you asked them, right, you don't think the government's doing very well, you don't think much of Rishi Sunak, is there anyone else who could do any better? We don't know if anyone else could do better or worse, but the times we're in are challenging for any government. There's a court between the rock and the hard place. They try and be harsh on immigration and bring the numbers down, but then someone says, no, that's racist, that's against human rights, it goes to court and gets shot down and they just can't win either way. We're struggling with the NHS, struggling with the housing. There's like too many things on the plate. And I think anyone who picks up that plate is going to be overwhelmed as well. I do think that this government in particular has a lack of empathy and is greatly detached from the common man and woman. <laughs> what what can number 10 make from that judge well i think it shows that we're headed for a very bleak election campaign next year because the silver lining for the conservatives is basically that the voters don't think anybody else can do any better yeah and uh it's interesting because we get a lot of this talk from labor for example but saying um you know britain is broken actually if you say britain is broken to voters they take that to mean um that the whole system is bust you know, politicians can't fix these things. They're out of their control. And I, I think there was a report uh, this week that Keir Starmer is, is looking to address this with Shadow Cabinet. There, apparently a presentation happened with his reshuffle cabinet about how to energise these voters who perhaps are feeling that politicians are powerless. Um, but that is a that is a big uh, thing to turn around. And, you know, you can see a very negative, almost quite dark campaign where Perhaps the Conservatives are saying, you've got to stick with us because no one else can do it better. So, James, let's turn now to what the group make of uh, Keir Starmer. We've heard, you know, they're not big fans of Rishi Sunak and the Conservative government. What do they think of Keir Starmer? I, I would like to like him, but I, I would say duplicitous. He was working with Corbyn and he backed Corbyn. And now he's leads of the Labour Party and he's just turned around on, on what he backed. Mm, unsure. I'd agree with duplicitous. Unsure. Inactive. I'm just not sure about him. I want to like him, but there's just something there. I think it's just because maybe he's from the Labour Party. I'm still unsure on who I'd vote for next, but I feel like Labour isn't what we need next. 
I think we need to get our economy back and Labour's not going to do that. Yeah, I don't think Labour as a party are probably the right people to get us out of this. But if he was a Tory, maybe. So, Jim, not a, not a ringing endorsement of Keir Starmer. No, and uh, when we were doing the group, uh, uh, my other uh, co-founder, um, Dr Tom Lubbock, said it's a bit of a handbrake turn. You know, they're very critical of... Uh, the uh, the Conservatives and Rishi Sunak, but then this thought of Labour is still concerning. Now, for most, actually, as I'm sure we're here, it wasn't enough to stop them from considering voting Labour. Um, but there are clearly some deep concerns, especially on the economy, on Starmer's leadership itself. A couple of other people mentioned immigration, crime. So, yeah, it's, uh, again, we say it every time, but you know, this is not Blair riding to victory in the 90s. There are still a lot of concerns about Keir Starmer and the wider Labour brand um, that will be deployed, I'm sure, by the Conservatives and other parties come the next election. So let's try and sort of unpick a bit of that then. That, you know, there's, there's openness to Labour, more being pushed away by the Tories. But what are those concerns? They're still none sure, it seems, in part about Labour and the economy. So let's just dig a bit deeper into that. I feel like the Labour Party has an awful reputation. Um, especially if he was linked to Jeremy Corbyn, that's like a complete no-no. I think he's gonna, they're gonna just ruin the economy. Wait until Labour gets in, it'd be worse. Yeah, it would be worse. They kind of tanked the economy. Didn't Gordon Brown sell off all the gold? And if I remember rightly, not that I'm, a, you know, I'm not gonna run out and vote Labour, but I don't really see how it could get any worse. I agree. You know, we say it can't get any worse, but. It could get worse. Yeah. If the wrong people got into power, I mean, everything could double. <laughs> We're a long way from things can only get better, James. Uh, having a debate about whether or not things could get worse. It, it, in, indeed. And again, you can see that sort of, you know, negative, quite, you know, bleak campaign taking taking shape uh, uh, off the back of these these comments. I could feel, I could almost feel from here, Matt, the, the, the uh, anger at some of our listeners at the Gordon Brown Gold Comet. Oh, I, mean, it, it, I found it very nostalgic, James. It took me took me way, way back to the, the days of when it's even sort of pre pre twenty ten that. This this idea that Gordon <laughs> Brown sold the gold. I mean it was daily, endless Daily Mail front pages about a decade. It, it, it was, and uh, it, worth saying that it's not the only time it came up. I mean, you know, we've, I've heard it in other focus groups. Um, Gordon Brown's management of the economy does still come up, um, and that has clearly created a view that Labour are not are not are not good on the economy. Um, immigration, crime, Keir Starmer's positions on things. You know, is he going to take a strong position? So, look, I'm not suggesting for a moment that these are terminal issues for Labour with the current frustration that the Conservatives and Rishi Sunak. Um, these are not necessarily enough to block them. But clearly, come a campaign, those polls are going to get more competitive um, because we're going to see those attacks come out and potentially start to change uh, some some voters' minds. Um, just for, for nerds uh, who, who aren't familiar with the, uh, the gold issue, uh, Gordon Brown, uh, between 1999 and 2002, sold off 395 tons of the UK's gold, uh, raising $3.5 billion. Uh, it was then uh, found that if in 2009 he'd hung on to the gold and sold it then, he'd have raised $10.5 billion, $7 billion difference, which, converted into pounds at the time, 
would have been worth £4.7 billion. So it was basically sold it off, uh, thinking he was getting a good deal, and then later the price of gold went up, and if it hung on to it, you know, we've all done that, sold things we shouldn't have done. Uh, that's what it was all about. But, I mean, this, I mean, that is properly ancient. You know, this is dating back to 1999, this. Uh, but it's still one of those things which just lodges in uh, in people's minds. Uh, right, let's move on again uh, then. And so you, you tried to press them a bit. They were found by the uh, market research company as being undecided, not sure what they would do at an election. But you tried to press them. If pushed, if they had to vote, how would they vote in an election? I think I'd probably end up going Labour just because I just think if I went Conservative, I'd just presume it'd fail again. And then I'd think, well, why didn't I go Labour? Uh, very slightly leaning Conservative because Labour seem softer on crime, immigration and the economy. I haven't seen any plan to put forward other than saying our government currently isn't doing well enough. I want to go for Keir Starmer then. I feel like he's, like I said earlier, I think he's almost, he's got sort of the characteristics of a of a Tory, but he's just for Labour. I think on balance, Labour, because Keir Starmer seems to be more real. I think I would try Keir Starmer. Even though I think he's duplicitous, he's less duplicitous than um, Ricky Sunak. I'd go for Conservative because I couldn't have Labour. Not because of Rishi, not because of Kishama. I just can't. I think Labour would just do an awful job. Kishama, though I don't really think he stands for much, he seems to not really take any stance on anything. Um, at least he's not Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, Jeremy, you can ring the bell for that one as well, James. Um, interesting. So here's a bit of analysis I want to sort of put to you, James. Off the, off the back of that, Mike has just texted in. So Labour's 20-point lead looks wide but shallow. Beyond the rhetoric on 13 years of toy mismanagement and it's time for change. What you're left with? A change to what and how, given the state of the economy and the public finances. Say what you like about Tony Blair, but he did sell his vision for Britain more effectively than Keir Starmer does. We could all do with a dose of that 90s optimism now, I feel. Difficult to offer that optimism. You haven't got any money to spend it on, though, Jones. Yeah, absolutely. But I think Mike's largely spot on there, which is uh, there is that lack of enthusiasm. There is that need for a, a positive vision. As you heard there, these voters are, you know, three of them, three of them broke for Labour, uh, three for the Conservatives. Um, sorry, sorry, four broke for Labour, three for the Conservatives, one for the Dems. Um, the, the Keir Starmer has them sort of interested, but he's not got them locked in. And, you know, whether it's a sort of a reform picture that he goes for or, or whether it's something else a bit more bold, he needs to create some sort of enthusiasm yeah. um, to, to lock them in. Or if not that, at least some kind of sense of seriousness and strength that they can back him as a leader on. That's all we've got time for on today's Focus Group. You can listen back to previous Focus Groups to see how public opinion has shifted during the last few months. Just search Times Radio Focus Group wherever you are listening to this podcast. Uh, we'll have another one next month. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly is goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.